0: Psalm fifty-seven. I'm really eager to share this incredible song with you from God's Word. Psalm fifty-seven. Let's start by reading it. I'll read the superscription to you, which says, "For the choir director, set to Al Tashhet, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave." Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He who reproaches him, who tramples upon me, selah. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows. And their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. This is the very word of the living God. May a spirit write its truth on our hearts so that our hearts might be steadfast. Steadfast indeed. I don't know if you've ever spent the night in a tree. Some of you are probably Yosemite hiker-camper types, and maybe you have stretched your hammock that way and slept in a tree. I like modern conveniences, not a big camper. But I'll never forget one of my favorite missionary biographies, and so often those biographies from church history of those who took the gospel to the ends of the earth are filled with stories of... Uh, encounters with uh, jungles and native tribes, and one of my favorite is the great Scottish missionary John G. Patton. I mean, his story is is an adventure from start to finish as this man brought Christianity to the South Pacific to a, a series of islands, uh, New Hebrides they called it, we call it Vanuatu now, uh, where Christianity had never touched before and Maybe the most famous story in my mind is the night that John Patton uh, was told by a tricky chieftain, one he had an uneasy alliance with, one that he wasn't sure if he should trust him, that the only way that he could save his life from the impending marauding natives that were coming to kill him was to climb up in this chestnut tree and hide all night. Patton didn't know if it was a trap or if this was a a way of of rescue, but he had no other options. And so this is what he writes, reflecting on that night in the tree in his autobiography. Being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, that's the chieftain he didn't trust. I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me, if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never In all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail. You then. Never did he feel closer to Jesus than the night he stayed in the tree. Surrounded by the threat of death, he found fellowship and consolation with his God. It's that kind of experience that John G. Patton had that finds its similar experience in Psalm 57. David, likewise, is under the threat of death, and there's lots of psalms where David is fleeing the scene. This is a series of psalms, actually, in the the 50s, in the Psalter, Psalm 52, Psalm 54, Psalm 56. They're all flight songs, songs about David running away uh, from his adversaries, and his enemies. Songs where David expresses the fear that comes from entrapment and betrayal. Songs where David cries out to God for rescue and stability because he doesn't know what the future holds. But two of his songs in his compilation are cave songs. The first is Psalm 57. The second is Psalm 100. 42. Those two songs were composed with a cave setting. And David understood what it was like to be among the caves in the wilderness as a shepherd boy. There would be times when he would find refuge in an outcropping of rocks. A refuge of rocks, a shelter place. Sometimes the caves were large, sometimes small, but David was familiar with that kind of a setting. And in the time of David's life, when he was running from Uh, The king Saul, because David was the, the true king, the anointed king, the king to be, and Saul had turned on him in irrational madness, David found himself hiding in the wilderness in a cave. Psalm 57, I think, is the first incident. It's recorded in 1 Samuel 22. And it's when David had not yet ascended to the throne, but Saul was hounding him and chasing him. He'd already tried to kill him with a spear, and now he's hunting him down. It's in 1 Samuel 22, where David finds himself in the cave of... A and it's there, after a brief time alone, that 600 men come who are faithful to David to be his ragtag army. And they're described in 1 Samuel 22 in not a complimentary way. It's kind of the, the dregs of society are the ones that are going to side with David. And Saul has all the armies and all the nation. And that's, that's kind of where David is now, Psalm 142, the other cave song, seems to be composed in En Gedi, and that's a 1 Samuel 24 scene in the way I understand it. And so the psalm before us this morning, Psalm 57, is a song that is composed in this first cave experience, when David had just uh, almost been assassinated by Saul. And David was on the lamb on the run from Saul and his armies. I think that because of the loneliness depicted in Psalm 57, this is before his ragtag group, uh, the motley crew that came around to uh, defend him. David seems to be in his first days in the cave. And this song was either composed In that time or inspired by that time as David writes from his cave days. And so Psalm 57 is a cry from a cave like John G. Patton up in the tree all by himself under the threat of death. David too finds this place seemingly the most dangerous and dark place of his life thus far to be a place of prayer and of praise. And it's for that reason I find Psalm 57 to be so timely and instructive for us as a church. I mean, you understand the, the truth that is asserted in Job, that man is born to trouble like sparks fly upward. And we understand that, that our lives are, are full of troubles and afflictions, of trials and, and difficulties. Of dark seasons of the soul, painful diagnoses, the loss of loved ones, the betrayal of of friends, a wayward child, the loss of a job, a thousand difficulties that mark the dark periods of our lives, that become a part of our life story, that wound our hearts and bring us low and put us in a cave day. We'll all have cave days like David. But we learn from this experience and from David's song about his days in the cave alone when all he has is God and all he has is a slender promise that was given to him sometime before by the prophet Samuel who poured anointing oil on the youngest son's head in front of all the brothers and said someday he would be the king. He had no experience of kingship yet, and he's being harassed and hounded by the the king who is on the throne now. And so David holds on to this promise and holds on to his God, and in this dark day of trouble, shows us what it's like to pray, shows us what it's like to praise And reminds us that we're all going to have troubles. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, there'll be trouble in your life. But the stark difference for you as a God-fearer, as a Christian, is that in the cave, in your trouble, God will be with you. And that trial becomes a place of intense fellowship with God. A place where you realize that, You would not have the intimacy and experience of God apart from the difficulties that God attended you through. That's why this psalm is so impressive to me and so important to my own heart because I know that in my own experiences of trial and difficulty and tribulation, The place I have to turn is God. And Psalm 57 shows me how to praise God from the cave. And it's the highest possible expression of praise to God from the lowest despondent place. And David's prayer comes flowing from a heart that is battered and beleaguered and bruised and broken. And here he is in this low, downed hole, but he keeps talking about the heavens and where God is and where his help comes from. It's a song about the power of God. The first half of the song is all about pray, prayer. It's just a, an expression of, of desire for rescue, of who, what he knows about God. And then the second half of the song is just this outbreaking of, of praise that comes forth from David that's almost without compare in all the Psalms. It's exuberant and musical and uh, you can almost hear the volume increase in the second half of this song. And so that's how we need to look at it. We need to look at this this cave day prayer and praise as instructive to us and how to do both of those things. And I think we'll learn two things. Number one in verses one through five, here's your outline. Prayer is grace-based And God focused. That's what we see from David's prayer. Verses 1 through 5, prayer is grace based and God focused. And then quickly we'll look at verses 6 through 11, which is that praise is powerful. And I'll show you what kind of power praise has and prophetic. Praise is powerful and prophetic. Verses 6 through 11. So let's go with David in his cave. And let's learn how he went from palace to wilderness, from attending to the king by being hounded by the king. How David went from being a courtier to a caveman and how this cave was transformed into a chapel because David held on to a promise that he knew God would be faithful to deliver him. And let's prepare ourselves for those same kind of days Maybe you're in those days right now, and you need to learn to pray and praise God accordingly so that you'll have his presence and his joy and his fellowship. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. These verses are so rich. There's so much truth there. Let's dive in. Prayer is grace-based and God-focused. Verse 1, David starts by appealing to God's mercy. Verse 1 says, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, because, or for, that's an explanatory kind of word, my soul has taken shelter in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take shelter until destruction passes by. David begins his prayer by teaching us something. And that something is that we begin every prayer at deficit, as debtors. David has real needs, right? Like the throne would be a nice answer to prayer. Not being in a cave, going back to the palace and having Saul, you know, nicely step aside. That that would be a wonderful outcome for David. But that's not where David starts. David begins by appealing to the reality that anything that comes is going to be purely a result of the grace of God because David understands that he is an undeserving sinner and God is a holy and righteous judge. That's what grace-based prayer is all about. And at the outset of any ask, of any request of any prayer of any petition we need to be mindful of the great debt we owe to god i mean that's why we pray to him it's not why we just have good thoughts within ourselves but we actually ask god and we ask god on the basis of his character and our lack be gracious to me david says two times be gracious to me O god To highlight the significance of this grace, to show that he doesn't deserve the rescue, the salvation, the promises that he's about to claim, that he's about to ask for. David shows that he's a debtor to grace. The prerequisite to any cry for salvation is a recognition of mercy, a plea for grace, All prayer is based in grace. And so, as David asks for a shelter in verse one and repeats that word shelter or refuge in your Bible in verse one, because my soul has taken shelter in you, David, finding himself in a proper cave, it's going to be got to be a big one because there's going to be 600 soldiers in there with him. This cavernous experience, he already has a shelter. So why is he asking God for a shelter? Well, I think the key is in this word, because my soul has taken shelter in you. David is recognizing that the roof of the cave is insufficient, that the the human Kind of elements or provision that 's around him, the, the sturdy walls of this of this enclave, is not ultimately what 's harboring david what 's sheltering david what 's protecting david what 's protecting David on the most ultimate level on the soul level is that he is sheltered in God himself, and so he says, In the shadow of your wings, I will take shelter. This prayer for grace. And this request for shelter, this grace-based prayer for protection is rooted in how David thinks about his soul and how David thinks about his God. One of my favorite Old Testament professors, Daniel Block, he taught me to not call the Old Testament the Old Testament. He gets kind of scoldy if you say Old Testament. He calls it the First Testament. And you you understand that, right? It helps alleviate the confusing and inaccurate idea that the grace of God is, is found in that New Testament. But you understand that the appeal to grace that David makes and the, the seeking after salvation and refuge is, is the very heart of First Testament theology. Lamentations 3.22, it is of Yahweh's mercies that we are able to not be consumed because his compassions fail not. And so David, grabbing on to this imagery, poetic imagery of wings. Wings are not something we think of as very sturdy and impressive, right? Right? Yet the poets in the Psalms love to use that image of of the wings of God. The idea is a hawk flies over and the little chicks get under the mother hen's wings and she shelters them and protects them. But when we think of wings, we're not very impressed. If I went to the gym, which would be weird, and you saw me there lifting weights, you wouldn't say, you know, nice chicken wings. It would be offensive. We don't think of wings as strong, but if you take this verse in its language and in its theological disposition, you see a appeal for mercy in verse 1, a request for this shelter he finds in God, in the shadow of God's wings, and then this unusual phrase, until destruction passes by. Well, to me that sounds like Exodus language. And if we're talking about sheltering wings and mercy, in David's experience of theology, in Israelite worship, there is one sacred piece of furniture where all those things come together. And that's the Ark of the Covenant. Right? That most sacred piece of Israelite furniture. It's a box that's gold-laden. No one was to touch it. They carried it on poles. Only the high priests. It had on the top of it a mercy seat. Where the sprinkling of the atonement blood would take place for the forgiveness of sins. But do you remember what was on top of that lid? There was Seraphim, wasn't there? Cherubim. There was, there was angelic creatures that looked like bulls with massive wings that went over covering the Ark of the Covenant. This isn't some weak-winged kind of picture. These are powerful creatures that attend the very presence of God whose wings signify the protection and covering and the necessary atonement and mercy that is found at the altar seat, at the mercy seat of God. Too many artists portrayed the angels as chubby, naked, little baby creatures, right? Little fat little wings, fat little baby cheeks. Nobody sees that and falls on their face and thinks they're going to die. They say, come here, let me snuggle you. That's not what happens when you encounter an angel. When you encounter an angel in the Bible, people fall on their face, and the first words the angel usually says is, fear not, because the people are so afraid And so this combination of language of the wings and the mercy and destruction passing by, this is David recognizing that he needs mercy, he needs grace, he needs protection, and these things go together. There is no salvation, there is no deliverance apart from a recognition of our need for God's forgiveness and mercy and grace. And that comes together with the theology of the atonement that finds its fullest and final expression in the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross. David needs shelter and so he seeks God's mercy. Prayer is grace-based. Richard Sibbs said there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Romans 5.20 says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The starting point for salvation, for deliverance, for rescue, friend, if you don't know it, is a recognition of your need for mercy, a need that only God can meet. Not only is it grace-based, this prayer is God-focused. Look at verse 2. I keep crying to God, Most High, That's the only place this phrase is used in the psalm, God Most High. Uh, Psalm 7 says Yahweh Most High, but this is the transcendent name of God, El. Uh, This is God Most High. It's a phrase you could find in Genesis 14. It's the name that Melchizedek uses, the high priest, uh, with with Abraham to refer to God. And so David is speaking of the transcendent God, the the God most high, the God of his forefathers. And he uses the phrase, I cry, which is parallel with verse 3, which says, He will send. Or more accurately and grammatically, David says, I keep crying to God most high. And then verse 3 says, he keeps sending from heaven to save me. David's determined faith is on display in the depths of this cave because his focus isn't ultimately on his troubles. His focus ultimately is on his God. I keep crying to God most high. David's confidence is already on display as he says he will send from heaven and save me. The location of God in heaven here, heaven is a a predominant word in this song. It occurs, I think, five times in the song. David keeps contrasting his life in the cave with God's availability in heaven. And that's really what God being in heaven and sending help is emphasizing. It's not just God's transcendence that he's above everything. It's that because God is transcendent, because God is in heaven, because he is above this this littered world, because he's over it all, he's able to intervene. He's able to rescue. He's able to attend to the needs of his servant. And so David sees God's Highness God as the Most High One, as God being able to deliver and save and rescue. God being in heaven underlines God's sovereign ability. Verse 3 goes on to say, as he reviles the one who haunts me, a kind of a strange phrase in, in Hebrew. The idea is that God will taunt the one who bugs his servant He'll pester the one who pesters us. He'll harass the one who harasses us. But I think the most lovely expression that shows us David's focus on the sovereign hand of God is that second line of verse 2. To God who brings everything to an end for me. That's a lot to translate three Hebrew words The main thing in that little phrase there is the the Hebrew word gamar. It means to bring something to an end or for something to come to an end. But the translation here is is good. I I just want you to hear it. David is, is praying for, he's crying out to God and God is sending from heaven to save. He's going to bring recompense, and he's going to taunt the taunters, but the big picture here with the focus on God is God who brings everything to an end for me. That is so lovely, to come to an end, to be dealt with completely, David's determined faith has in focus the sovereignty of God, a God who brings everything to an end for me. In other words, God will settle everything. God will deal with everything completely. God will fulfill his purpose for me. That's what that line means. And it amplifies our attention on God instead of our attention on our trials. That's why we understand as Christians that trials exist in a world full of trouble for all its inhabitants. But for Christians, trials exist to strengthen our faith to increase our dependence, to wean us from this world, to provoke us to holiness. It's why James can say something as outrageous as count it all joy when you fall into various trials, and that not be something that's insensitive or unkind, but something that is wise and helpful and good. Because David understands and New Testament theology understands that because of God's sovereign commitment to his people, everything will work out in the end for you. That's what that verse says. I mean, is that not just a tiny Old Testament version of Romans 8.28? That God uses all things, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I mean, that is a glorious testimony that highlights the the sovereignty of God as David cries and God sends. And and how does God send? Well, he does it by his character because he does everything by his character. The final line of verse 3, God will send his loving kindness and truth. I've preached more than half of the Psalms. I'm trying to chip away at this, this book. And I will never tire of explaining the two most commonly paired duos in the Psalms. Loving kindness and truth. It would get repetitive if it wasn't the best news ever. Loving kindness, as he said, the, the truth of God on display there is so often right next to his loving kindness. Emet, truth. It's a duo. And I love a dynamic duo, especially this dynamic duo. I'm a fan, and this is one of my great weaknesses, of the association, uh, the National Basketball Association. And you can, those who have studied the game carefully, because if you can't play that well you just study the game carefully, understand that there's been some historic duos. I'm talking about a one-two punch. Players who feed off of each other, who make each other better, who complement each other with their strengths. Uh, lots come to mind. Jordan and Pippin and, Pippen and uh, Shaq and Kobe and Uh, Tatum and Brown, but we report, you decide. Anyway, you understand that that these players feed off each other. They make each other better. They're paired up perfectly as they push each other to be the best they can be. Likewise, this duo constantly appearing together in the Psalms of loving kindness and truth, of God's loyal covenant commitment to his people, and God's unbreakable, unfailing word are always featured right next to each other. And David has every confidence that when God sends one, he'll send the other. Because the covenant love of God says that God's commitment to you is unbreakable. The faithfulness or truthfulness of God says that he can't change that. So that you can have assurance of God's love and God's faithfulness because this is an unbreakable commitment and an unfailing promise that go together. So David is praying. But David's still not perfect, you see. Verse 4 depicts his ongoing panic. And that's, I think that's helpful too because Just because we're praying in a God-focused and grace-based way doesn't mean we're not sometimes also panicking. We don't know the outcome. And David's still in the cave. Verse 4 is staccato, broken Hebrew. It sounds something like this. My soul, the middle, lions, adult lions, lied down among devouring ones probably, their teeth spears, arrows, their tongue sword sharp huh? I mean, that is as sticky as the floor up here. It's just all these staccato words, lie among devouring soul midst lions, their teeth spears arrows, their tongue sword sharp. It's almost like a racing heartbeat as David feels the the enemies encroaching around his hiding place. And what's interesting is this isn't just the threat of death, it's seems to be mostly focused on the the threatening power of their words. Of all the things that David's enemies can do to him, chop off his head, keep him in the wilderness, throw him in a pit, it seems to be their slanderous gossip that bothers David the most. Verse 4 depicts his ongoing cat panic and the cause for his distress as this rapid poetry is frantic and disjointed and it displays David's misery and chaos because prayer isn't for when everything has been resolved. Prayer is for the midst of that. But what's in the midst of it for David seems to be how much it bothers him. All the lies they're speaking about him. And if you've ever been lied about, you understand this. I mean, that's what 1 Corinthians 4, we read it for the scripture reading, was all about apostolic indignation about the rumors and the lies that were being assailed against a man of impeccable integrity. The Apostle Paul wasn't perfect, but the Apostle Paul had a clear conscience. And David, likewise, is so disturbed that his enemies are speaking words that are so destructive. This is a common experience for those who serve the Lord. You know this. Spurgeon understood this in his day. He was written about in the press constantly, maligned, scrutinized, criticized. And when he ran into a verse like this, it would impact his heart. This is what Spurgeon said. Malicious men carry a whole armory in their mouths. They have not harmless mouths whose teeth grind their own food as in a mill, but their jaws are as mischievous as if every tooth were a javelin or an arrow. They have no molars. All their teeth are canines. And their nature is canine, leonine, wolfish, devilish. As for that busy member, the tongue, in the case of the malicious, it is a two-edged, keen, cutting, killing sword. The tongue, which is here compared to a sword, has the adjective sharp attached to it. Which is not used in reference to the teeth which are compared to spears as if to show that if men were actually to tear us with their teeth like wild beasts they could not thereby wound us so severely as they can do with their tongues. No weapon is so terrible as a tongue sharpened on the devil's grindstone. Yet even this we need not fear. For no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that riseth against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. Spurgeon gets it. The Apostle Paul understands it. David's praying about it. And his prayer turns from the most frantic, the most panic moment in this psalm, the most chaotic moment, to the chorus repeated identically in verse 5 and verse 11. Listen to the chorus of praise from a cave. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Spurgeon, after speaking to those malicious men with an armory in their mouth, moves right into these words. Before he's concluded his prayer, the good man interjects a verse of praise and glorious praise, too, seeing it comes from the lion's dead and amid the coals of fire. It's a simple little chorus, isn't it? Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. What does it mean? Well, if verse 3 was God's power on display, that He's all-powerful, He saves from heaven, then verse 5 speaks of God's, not His power, but His importance. That's what exaltation is about. God is preeminent. We ascribe to Him the highest praise. He is our focus. He commands our attention, our adoration. Our faith is fixed on Him. Our concern is for His glory, His honor, His praise. And so David says, be exalted, O God. Be lifted up. The one who is already as high as the heavens needs to be seen that way from our hearts, ascribed that way in our minds attended to in that fashion from our affections, that God would be exalted above the heavens and let His glory cover all the earth means that we have a completely exalted God and our focus is no longer on ourselves. But once we become people of God, believers because of the grace of God, because of the work of Jesus, we're no longer in the center of our focus and attention But God occupies that place, and we come around that as the center of our lives. And so His praise and glory and honor is our predominant concern, not our trials, not our suffering. We recalibrate our thinking with God as the center, with God as the focus, because we understand that everything we have comes from God's grace. And so we move to the final part of this psalm, which is praise that's both powerful and prophetic. And we don't need to spend a a lot of time on this because it's so straightforward. Verse 6, he reminds us this prayer is still, this praise is still in a place of trouble. Annette, there's probably somebody in here named Annette, so let me try to say that better. A-net. No offense, Annette. A snare. Let's change it. A snare. There's probably somebody here named a snare too, but it's unfortunate. A snare they have set for my steps. This is so picturesque. My soul is bowed down, so he's still in a place of great spiritual difficulty. They dug a pit in front of me, but they fell into it themselves. In Hebrew, it's, it's, well this isn't Hebrew, but it's, let me just try the expression, how you like them apples. It's not Hebrew at all. (laughs) They spread the trap. His soul is so low. They dig a pit. They cover it up with malice, with entrapment. They have got him cornered. They've concealed their trap, and then in this ultimate moment of irony, they fall into the trap they dug. I don't very often explain the word Selah because nobody really knows what it means. Some people think it's a musical notation. Some people think it just is a pause. Others have said Selah is a time where you pause and ask yourself the question, what do you think about that? And there's a sailor right after this thing, right after that pit that the enemies dug for David, and then they fell in. What do you think about that? How do you like those apples? It's a reminder that, that God will always accomplish final justice, that no one can usurp his throne. Spurgeon again we may sit down at the pit's mouth and view with wonder the just retaliations of providence. Whoa. We're just dangling our feet over the edge. That pit was dug for us. But God protected us. And God punished His enemies because He always will. And that's why praise in this final section is so powerful, because praise does something to the praiser. I mean, praise doesn't change God. It doesn't increase God's glory. There is no way to do that. He is perfect, complete on his own. But praise changes us. Praise is powerful because it strengthens us in our trials and steadies us. And so we praise all the more. Look what happens in verse 7. One commentator calls it marvelously abrupt. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. Just as the double plea for grace opens this psalm. Verse 7 has a double commitment, a double establishment, a firmament, a kind of preparation. The word is kun, to be secure. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. Praise has brought the the trial, the sufferer, to a place of calm, to resolution, to trusting, to steady-heartedness, to be well-prepared for whatever is before us at a place where we can sing wow that's what david does is david sings now that his heart is fixed now that truth has endured and fixed his experience into providence and into God's plan and into God's sovereignty, as he hangs on to the promise, he just starts to sing. Verse 7, I will sing and make music. And then verse 8, awake my glory. An unusual phrase. Uh, glory is the weight of a person, the significance of a person. Be that God or be that a, a human being, David saying his glory should awake, I, I think, is a way for him to say, all that is me, all that is in me, all that I am, be capable of praise. Wake up my glory. And then he gets the instruments out. Awake my lute and harp. I'm not sure David even had a lute and harp with him in a cave on the run, but he calls it all to wake up in memoriam of that day when his heart was steadied and fixed and his praise was ascending before the sun came up. He says, I will awake the dawn he wakes himself his glory his lute and harp he awakes the dawn because another day of praise means he made it through the dark night which means that god was faithful musical worship is ultimately not for mild applause Musical worship is ultimately for the audience that is God because it magnifies the worth of God, the, proclaims the truth of God, it cherishes the glory of God in a way that only poetry can capture because God cannot be described sufficiently in human prose. And so David gives thanks. Verse nine. I'll oh, give thanks. Adonai, it means sovereign one among the people. That's a word, om. It's like uh, the the Hebrew people. It's the people of Abraham. It's the people of David. It's his own people. He thanks the Lord. This vertical praise has horizontal implications because he also thanks God in front of the other worshipers. But like all praise, it's very difficult to contain. And so there's another word, peoples. Verse 9, I will sing praises to you among the peoples A different word, a plural word, speaking of states, tribes, nations, peoples. David's giving a testimony to the whole earth. And what does he testify of? He testifies of the attributes of God that have calmed and steadied him, the ones he asked God to send from heaven. Verse 10, your loving kindness is great to the heavens. Your truth is up to the clouds as far as the eye can see. Be exalted, O God. There's the chorus again. Be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. His praise, verse 8, is musical. Verse 9 is congregational and evangelistic. Verse 10 is theological. Those two attributes are extolled as high and as far as we can see. And then the chorus again that reminds us that our God is a completely exalted God. Our praise is powerful because of what it accomplishes in and around us. And our praise is prophetic, I said. Why prophetic? As we rap this song. Well, I told you that David hasn't yet received the Davidic covenant, but he has so much confidence. This song, 57, is pre-David's deliverance. It's pre-David's coronation. It's pre-the covenant promise, but it's not a pipe dream. And that's why this praise has a prophetic leaning. It's focused on grace that's to be revealed in the future. And Christian, if David could hang on to that slender promise of a monarchy distributed by the prophet's oil, how much more can we hang on to the not slender but foundational promises that are ours in the gospel? I mean, take any of them. Hebrews chapter 2. After quoting Psalm 8 about men or Ground with glory and honor as the crown of God's creation. And everything has been appointed under the feet of of humankind. Everything has been put subject under the feet of of man and and the great man, the the, the second Adam. Everything is subject to His feet specifically. Speaking of Christ, the author of Hebrews says this in verse 8, You have put all things in subjection under His feet. For in subjecting all things to Him... He left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Question Do, is, different question, is this world, look around at it, completely subjected to Christ? The biblical answer is yes and not even close. And so we wait. We wait because we know that God's not finished and we hang on to the promise. That's what David was doing. That's exactly what we're doing. He will vindicate us. He will deliver us. He will rescue us. In the Middle Ages, there was a great desire to find a sea route to India for spices. The land route was too expensive, too laborious, too dangerous. But no one was sure there was even a way to go by, by sea. And so they, they sent ships down around the, what they thought might be a passageway below Africa. And they called it the Cape of Storms because no one ever survived. They weren't even sure it existed until one man, Vasco de Gama. What a great name. Vasco da Gama made it through and made it back to Lisbon and brought spices to Europe. And he opened that up and they didn't call it the, the Cape of Storms anymore. They called it the Cape of Good Hope because one man made it through. If David could hang on to his slender promise, then we can hang on to our robust promise in the gospel because one man has made it through. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, exalted. He intercedes for us. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. Give your life to Him by faith. What He accomplished on the cross is the purchase of the grace that forgives us completely and brings us in fellowship with God. A fellowship That cannot be disturbed, whether we're up in a tree or down in a cave. In every trial, in every circumstance, with slander all around us, we look to God and we sing like David does Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, knowing that He is and knowing that He will be. And because Jesus is there, because one man made it through, we will be there also. And so we wait. For the promise in all its fullness. And we cry from a cave. And we praise. And we experience deep abiding fellowship with our God. Father, thank you for your truth. So much grace in your word for us. So much encouragement. So much help for the hurting. To exalt God in our troubles. To have our focus on him is of extraordinary assistance. Father, I pray for any here that don't know you savingly. Would you open their eyes to the truth of the gospel? For once, may their their focus finally be taken off of themselves and their desires and their circumstances. Recalibrate their perspective around the cross and the resurrection. Friend, if that's you I'm praying for, the prayer room is open to my right, to your left. Will you avail yourself to talk to some somebody? Have them there's counselors over there, they'll explain the gospel to you, they'll pray with you. Go in there after service and have your spiritual needs addressed. And Father, to you, we say, be exalted among the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. In Jesus' matchless name. Amen.